You know, I do think there is also more pressures and I, I, I think that it's got to be a combination. Like I, I'm hoping that more people are coming forward and getting more supports and I definitely see that. Um, but weight stigma still exists and that people think that there's only one way to look, you know, when you have an eating disorder or disordered eating and that shame and guilt that maybe you don't look like how you think you should. So not accessing resources and helping people to see that actually like weight is just a symptom of what's going on. So regardless of where someone lies within like a weight paradigm, they are very worthy and deserving of supports, especially if their relationship with food and their bodies has become fractured. Hello, and welcome back to the Will Now What podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. I know a lot of people out there have dealt with negative body image thoughts, disordered eating, or has seen a loved one go through it. The pressures of social media can definitely create a toxic mentality of how you think you should look like. Every day we are bombarded by health influencers telling us we should eat a certain way or work out a specific way, but in reality every body is different. There is no one size fits all when it comes to our health and body. So today's guest is Ali Eberhardt. Ali is a registered dietitian who has helped countless women ditch diet culture. She's been working in the Provincial Adult Program Specialized Eating Disorders since 2011. In today's episode, we talk about the process of becoming a registered dietitian, her thoughts on health influencers, how she built her practice and how she continuously grows her clients' space, why most women deal with disordered eating, and top three skills she thinks you you should have to be a successful RD. I hope this episode is helpful for anyone either interested in becoming a registered dietitian or just curious to learn more about the industry. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Ali Eberhardt. Ali is a registered dietitian who has helped countless women ditch diet culture, all while working hard to take weight stigma and fat phobia out of our dialogue. I know personally in my group of friends, a lot of us have dealt with some sort of body issues, comparison with others, or distorted eating. And with the rise of social media and the health and wellness industry, I think it's extremely important to open up this dialogue. I also think a lot of people out there are interested not only in nutrition, but also curious to learn more about a very client-faced role. So Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'd love to hear on how you got started. Did you always know what you wanted to do as a career? Honestly, no. Like I, so thank you so much for having me too. I'm so happy to be able to chat with you. And uh, yeah, I don't know how, I mean, I think in a lot of things in my life, I've kind of, I mean, I've put in the work, but certainly I do feel like there's a path that was sort of like destined and, and the work that I do now is I feel couldn't be more aligned with what I'm intended to do or what I meant to do. But it was sort of an interesting journey. Like I had always thought that I was going to do medicine when I, I'm from Saskatchewan originally. And when I came out to UBC, I just assumed like I really enjoyed sciences and I really wanted to help people. So I was like, well, naturally I will be a doctor. And I mean, that's a very noble profession, certainly. But I think the more I started to learn about healthcare and just kind of where my passions really lie where, you know, I I really wanted to be engaged in like relationship building, like kind of that ability to like help, you know, coach someone in their connection to their bodies or their connection to health. Certainly like preventative healthcare was something that I was really interested in. And just the medical model doesn't always allow for that in, you know, in our 
in our society, a lot of the time when people go to see a doctor, they've already, you know, been experiencing an illness or experiencing symptoms of something. And it's more about like diagnosing and treating, which is obviously important. But um, the more I kind of started to to learn and I had a family friend who was a who is a physician um, who I had, you know, kind of a lunch with early in my university and they sort of helped open my eyes a bit what the role of a physician would actually would entail that I started to kind of think like, I wonder what else is out there for me. I had been working, I worked in various sort of like peer counseling roles at UBC. Like I had worked in the a peer counseling center for many years and I worked as a residence advisor and then a senior advisor for many years as well. So I was like, well, maybe counseling, I'm not sure. And I wanted to stay in sciences. So I was kind of just like feeling a little bit like lost, uh, to be honest with you. I was doing sciences and didn't want to work in a lab, but didn't know where my role would be. And I actually had someone come into um, the counseling center that I was working in and she had, she didn't get into the dietetics program at EBC. And so she came into my session and, you know, was just like distraught and we worked through that and she kind of talked through the program a little bit, but it honestly like <laughs> stimulated a thought. I'm like, oh, that program sounds kind of kind of great. So, I mean, obviously it didn't work out for her in that way, but I sort of was like, hmm, interesting. So I always joke that I kind of like dole her dream, which obviously isn't the case, but it just sort of fell into my laps, the dietetic, the, my lap, the dietetics program. And I was like, huh, this sounds like very aligned with kind of what I want to do. So I applied to the UBC dietetics program and, and got in, which was, you know, it all kind of like came together for that. But I hadn't, I didn't even know what a dietitian was before I got into the program. Yeah, great. So yeah, what's the process of becoming a registered dietitian? Do you need to do certain like work terms? Um, is it like a four-year program? Yeah. So, I mean, each province has sort of a unique um, approach to how people become educated to become dietitians. So I went through the British Columbia system. I, I was going to UBC. And so in BC, we have a program that accepts about 30 students per year. Um, and in that program, it's a three-year program where the first two years are classroom-based. So, you know, you're doing co- coursework and classroom learning in the field of nutrition, sciences, human physiology, chemistry, you know, all the different aspects of like classroom-based learning. And then the UBC program has a 10-month internship. So um, basically you go through a series of different placements in different areas of clinical and community and management dietetics and, you know, have to achieve certain learning tasks and learning criteria through those different placements. Um, and at the end, you write a licensing exam. And so that's the process that I went through. Some provinces accept more students into the classroom-based learning, but then it's a little bit more competitive to get into internship placements. You have to achieve some pretty specific guidelines through um, the Canadian Dietetic Association, like through all of our regulatory bodies to achieve, to be able to write the licensing exam and call yourself a registered dietitian because it is a protected term. It is a protected term in North America and throughout throughout the world. But um, UBC's program is more that you kind of like, maybe it's a little bit more competitive to get into the program itself. But once you're in, it's just like this really amazing community because everyone is sort of guaranteed an internship placement. Um, and I think in other provinces, it's a little bit different in that maybe more students get in, but they don't um, have a guaranteed placement or it's a little bit more, a little bit different. So I'm really grateful for the the way that I went through the program and through how BC 
host the program because you're in this like intense experience for three years with, you know, kind of the same 30 people. And, you know, that serves to foster in your career as well, because you get a chance to just, you know, build these connections of people that are going to be in your professional circles, probably for the entirety of your career. Yeah. Okay. So is it a competitive industry to be successful? Well, um, no, definitely. I think, One thing that I love so much about, I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions to anything. I can only really speak to my experience, but I do feel that the profession of dietetics and dietitians um, that I'm, you know, working with, I I feel like it's a very supportive industry. I think that like the fact is that there are so few of us, you know, if you think about in the entire province, we are only training and registering 30 maximum um, dietitians each year. It's a very small community, but with a career focus that's only expanding and only requiring more and more. So more and more businesses and more and more people in the community, more and more industries are recognizing the importance of dietitians, but there is not that many of us. So um, I think, you know, my experience has been that like, we're just a very supportive career or like profession and, you know, really wanting each other to just like flourish and do well. And it, and because I think for most of us, we're so passionate about the work we do that like, we're kind of like a little army of advocates for the, for the most part. Yeah, that's great. So what is the difference with kind of like a fitness coach a nutritionist, um, life coach, naturopath? Yeah. So a registered dietitian, it's a term that's regulated by Health Canada. So essentially, if you are calling yourself a registered dietitian for the safety of the public, there are certain things that we are trained to do and we are only trained to do. Um, And so whereas like with, you know, some of the other terms that aren't protected, like say a nutritionist or a holistic nutritionist, um, there's no regulatory body to keep the public safe. So certainly there's professionals in like every single profession who, you know, are obviously like very skilled at what they do, but because there's no um, regulatory body, it's not a guaranteed level of, of education or uh, of knowledge when you're seeing them. And so registered dietitians, we have a very specific schooling, very specific skill set that we're consistently having to upgrade and keep up on from like a learning perspective and from proving competency to keep the public safe. So, you know, when you're seeing a registered dietitian, there's a guarantee that there's a certain level of knowledge that they hold. And just with other professional terms that aren't regulated, that just isn't um, necessarily a guarantee. So it could be something like someone took a weekend seminar, you know, and they're calling themselves a nutritionist, or it could be that they like really do have some incredible background of knowledge and skill set, but it's just not a consistent feature of that term. So that's kind of the difference between different like health coaches and a registered dietitian. Some dietitians include the term nutritionist just because it's so recognized by the public, um, but not necessarily because it's a, but, but they are registered dietitians in that like we are regulated by Health Canada. Um, and the naturopathic doctors are, are sort of similar in that they have their own college and they are regulated by Health Canada and they do different sort of aspects of, of a more holistic healthcare approach. And yeah, I think just the key is that there's like regulatory bodies that support um, making sure that the public stays safe um, from people's claims. Okay. Yeah. And so working in a hospital, specifically the eating disorders programs requires your full hundred percent attention and energy. So how do you find the time to de-stress? Do you do you limit the amount of clients you see per day? Well, honestly, this is like a consistent part of my journey and like a work in progress. I think like part of 
what makes me skilled at what I do is that I just love my clients and I love my work and I'm passionate about it. And I'm, you know, a passionate advocate for, for all of the like topics that impact my clientele so much, both I work in the eating disorder program here at St. Paul's Hospital, but I also have a private practice where I see clients with disordered eating as well and who face varying levels of weight stigma. And so, yeah, there are times when I just like burn myself out and I'm no good to anyone. You know, like one of the psychologists I work with always talks about like putting your oxygen mask on first before you help anyone else. And so it has been like a feature of my, like, I would say last decade of learning as a professional, how to like notice the warning signs when I am starting to burn myself out. Sometimes it's about like, you know, setting boundaries, like you mentioned, like noticing how many clients really, you know, you feel like you're kind of in your groove for, um, and giving yourself permission for that to change. So even if it was that like last year, I had a whole, a different energy level, like kind of noticing when I'm starting starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed or just starting to feel not quite myself or not doing the things that I know I need to do to take care of myself. But self-care is a huge part of any, any giving profession because like, obviously you like, you know, you put a lot of energy into something that's not necessarily reciprocated in the same way as like uh, other relationships in your life where it's a little bit more give and take. Um, but yeah, time, timeline, boundaries. I try to like really protect my like weekends and time away from. It's so easy, especially in this current climate where everything is virtual to, you know, have those temptations to like be checking my email more regularly or like, you know, checking email outside of like the hours where I would typically do that or maybe seeing clients at different times because it's all on Zoom or all on FaceTime. So it's all really easy to do. Um, but yeah, trying really hard to like set those boundaries and make sure that I'm like just checking in with myself about how, how I'm coping and how I'm doing. Cause it, yeah, I think it's a constant journey. And part of what I've come to understand is of like this, my current experience or my, my profession is that the more I get to know myself and the more I understand how to take care of myself, the better I am for my clients as well. So, um, but it's hard to do in my, the beginning of my career, like it was so challenging for me to say no to things. And, and, you know, certainly in my private practice, you know, I would be like seeing clients like every night of the week, even though I have one designated day that I'm in my private practice. And, you know, actually my mom was like, you wouldn't call your dentist and be like, you know what, like those hours don't work. Can you come in on a Saturday or come in on like a Thursday night? Because it doesn't work for me. It's like, if it's something important, people will come into your hours. And so it's really hard to set those boundaries or it can be, and it has been for me. So that's one of the most important things for me. Yeah. And how did you build your client base at the beginning? Cause I know that you're probably young and eager. And um, I know, I think with like doctors or dentists, for example, a lot of people go based on referrals or reviews. So how did you start off? Yeah, it it kind of like naturally evolved in some ways. I mean, definitely I have been a part of various organizations within the eating disorder community in Vancouver and in British Columbia, pretty much from the get-go of my career. Um, so over the last, you know, 10 plus years, being involved in different kind of groups, getting my name out there and getting to know people um, definitely helped. I took over the practice from another dietitian actually who was moving to um, Alberta to do her counseling degree. So that in some ways started things out, but it was a slow process and it's still like, you know, is a learning process. I think I, you know, I just kind of set realistic goals for myself and I, um, and I just was like really kind and like, you know, kind of just observed for the first year. Like my thing was that I'm not going to be attached to any outcome. Like 
this might work out really well. This might not work out really well. And this might just sort of not be the right fit for me. So just being open to whatever presents itself and um, that I don't need to have like an attachment to any specific outcome because I think that can just set you up for disappointment at times. And so I just kind of committed to the first year of my private practice to just observe and just see what happens and notice if there's anything that feels like it's not working for me and maybe make some adjustments. So that was sort of my goal for the first year. And I think it really helped in the sense that I, you know, just felt like I I didn't necessarily put a pressure that I had to do a certain amount of clients in a week or anything like that. And I was, I was fortunate that the clinic I was working in was really supportive of that. Although, you know, to be honest, because of the nature of the work I do, like there's at this point, there's no shortage of people who are wanting to repair their relationship with food and their bodies and who are facing the long-term consequences of living in a diet culture. And so, um, you know, I think that because of the the nature of what I do, there is just no shortage of people who are wanting support around that, which uh, which actually like obviously speaks to the climate that we we live in. But definitely, um, just was being really kind with myself in the beginning and and not putting too much pressure on. Which for a Type A personality, can be like a little bit easier yeah. said than done. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you kind of do? I guess it's changed now with COVID. But what's your day to day? Do you um, how much time do you spend with St. Paul's on your private practice, as well as um, do you continuously do research? Because I know there's always research out there regarding nutrition. Yeah. So I'm actually co-host of a podcast, um, and we it's myself and another dietitian, and we um, tackle different diet topics and like cut the basically like cut through all the different um myths out there around nutrition so we are constantly doing research like both to understand kind of what is the science behind some of these claims and and also to make sure we're like getting the most up-to-date information i mean to date there is no diet or weight loss protocol that is actually effective for sustaining weight loss and that's part of the whole like myth of diet culture even to begin with that they're selling this product that literally fails for everyone. Um, there's a very, very, very small popu- percentage of the population who maybe can sustain weight loss, but at the cost of, of course, um, a lot of the other aspects that lead to a fulfilling life. So, you know, we try to keep very up to date with science because science is one of like the best tools we have against media propaganda. Um, but yeah, like I'm full-time at St. Paul's in the eating disorders program. And I also have a private practice that I, that I go to once a week and, um, sort of, ch- I, shift my hours on those days so that I can be in, um, be in my private practice once a week. Um, and then, yeah, like just trying to keep up on things. We're certainly really involved in other aspects of research here at St. Paul's hospital. So I am actively involved in that. And then there are times where I'm like, okay, I need a vacation. And I just like turn everything off and I'm like, I've taken on too much, but um, yeah, any given day can look really different. I do a lot of work individually with clients as well as like supporting them through like meals, helping with like functional skills. So, you know, one of the greatest gifts that we can have in connecting to food in our bodies is actually bringing pleasure into food and pleasure into eating and pleasure into cooking and getting in the kitchen. For a lot of my clients, that's such a foreign and or scary place to be. So I try to like come up with kind of creative and fun ways for us to connect over food. Obviously my creativity cap has been like majorly on in this current pandemic because I can't be in person with my clients like cooking or, you know, preparing meals with them or doing things like that. So we're having to be really creative, but I, you know, anything from like nutrition education. So like I participate in, or I facilitate groups around like our relationship with movement and how we move our bodies and 
groups that help educate on like the different macro and micronutrients that, you know, help us to understand our emotional connections to food. So you name it, I probably have my hat in that ring um, in in some way, shape or form within whether that's in my private practice or here at the hospital or um, on in the podcast that that Hannah and I co-host. Yeah, I, I actually love your podcast. I've been listening to it uh, and I really like it. You guys really did a good job of balancing like the scientific facts and then also answering the questions. But um, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, it's really fun eh, for both of us. I think it helps us to like connect on a personal level to the things that we're doing. I mean, you know, a lot of our clients kind of look at us as dietitians and it's like, well, it must just come so easy to you and helping to normalize the fact that like we are not, you know, Im- like we are human beings and, and we are not impermeable to the messages of like weight stigma and diet culture and, um, you know, wanting to help our clients and patients to understand that we're going through this journey as well. You know, like as a dietitian, when I went to school, you know, we were just taught weight loss, you know, and not, I'm not saying that in a way that's negative. I think that's what everyone really believed at the time that that was the best thing to do for people to improve their connection to body and health. And the more we learn, the more we understand and, you know, the more we research and certainly from like the, you know, the learnings of the health at every size movement, it's it's very clear that we were completely misdirected, but it's brand new stuff for me too. You know, like I went to school and I really thought I was going to be changing the world, um, through health. And I still believe that, but how that looks is like very different than when, you know, when I first thought about being a doctor or a dietitian. And so it's, it's a brand new, yeah, area, but we need to be able to provide our voice to it as well. But yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, of course. And with the rise of social media, do you think more and more people are dealing with disordered eating or do you think the conversation is just a lot more normalized than let's say 50 years ago? I think probably both, you know, I think that definitely people, it's like the blessing and the curse of being more connected, right? So it's an opportunity to have build communities and connections with people that you maybe never would have in regular in-person opportunities and to find a community of people who understand what you're going through in your lived experience. I hope that that is providing a bit more freedom for people to start to talk about the fat phobia that exists in the world and trying to like embrace and accept and, you know, support their physical bodies, even, you know, without changing their bodies necessarily. But, you know, I do think there is also more pressures. And I I, I think that, you know, it's it's got to be a combination. Like I, I'm hoping that more people are coming forward and and getting more supports, and I definitely see that. Um, but weight stigma still exists, and that people think that there's only one way to look. You know, when you have an eating disorder or disordered eating, and that shame and guilt that maybe you don't look like how you think you should. So not accessing resources and helping people to see that actually like weight is just a symptom of what's going on. So regardless of where someone lies within like a weight paradigm, they are very worthy and deserving of supports, especially if their relationship with food and their bodies has become fractured. Um, But we, yeah, but I mean, I think definitely we're seeing more and more cases and more and more people who are coming forward who, yeah, who don't fit maybe that quote unquote typical mold, which is really amazing because we want to, the more supports people have, the sooner they have it, the more likely they are to repair their relationship with food. So yeah. Yeah. And you've said before that eating disorders are not a choice and most of your clients would definitely choose different coping mechanisms if they could. So yeah. what are some, and I like I air quote, good, good coping mechanisms that you often provide 
while kind of dealing with, while your customers or clients, sorry, deal with stress? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the piece that a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, the way that someone's relationship with food and their body develops is a way of, you know, distracting or displacing emotions that are, you know, have, uh, have difficulty being expressed otherwise, or a way of coping with difficult emotions, a way of numbing, a way of getting out of their mind or getting out of this like difficult experience. And so you can't just turn something like that off. You can't just say like, Hey, stop doing that, eat more or eat less and you'll be fine. Like those are just such invalidating statements. So helping people to see that like at the beginning, you know, we really want to, you know, approach things with self-compassion and kindness and, you know, also recognize that eating disorder or disordered eating symptoms have been practiced for a really long time. So, you know, just because, so if say, for example, someone's like, Hey, like, why don't you try journaling? Well, if you've never tried journaling before, it's definitely not going to feel as effective as something that you've practiced over and over again, regardless if logically, you know, that your eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors aren't supportive of your long-term health or they don't make you feel good, they're effective because they've been practiced. And so instead of just trying to replace, you know, eating disorder symptoms, it's about kind of filling your life up with different things that can help to bring, you know, what you're searching for, what you're looking for. We help clients to start to understand how to ground themselves in the here and now and use various tools, whether that's like psychotherapy or, you know, meditation or connecting to their physical body in a positive way you know, helping clients to see that there are different ways of like stress outlet and ways to kind of cope with difficult emotions. And first of all, naming their emotions, because a lot of the time the impulse is so strong to use um, their disordered symptoms or their or maladaptive coping that they don't even have the ability to kind of like slow down and identify what's going on in the first place. Like if I can't slow down and identify what's going on, it doesn't matter if someone told me I should try meditation, like it's not going to be connected. Like we kind of talk about it the same way as like, you know, a sore throat. Like if you have strep throat or a throat infection, yeah, like the symptom is your sore throat, but you need to kind of look and get to the get to the bottom of what's actually going on before you provide a treatment. And so helping clients to slow down and start to see what's going on underneath, helping them reconnect to their body through trusting and nourishing and, and recognizing that nourishing your body is one of the greatest forms of self-care that, that we have. And, um, you know, but there's not one size fits all the same way that there's not one type of body that flourishes in this world. There's certainly stigma associated with lots of bodies, but all bodies fit and, helping people to, you know, start to connect to the way that they nourish their body in a kind, loving way. And, and then as a result, like when those emotions start to come up, helping them to use the different tools of tolerating their distress, of distraction, of, you know, self-care, of, you know, grounding, meditation, breathing, journaling, expressing themselves through art, through, you know, trying to fill up that toolbox. So yeah, the eating disorder coping skill might be one tool that they have. And we don't even need to throw that tool out. It's just that maybe we build such strong other tools that it's just not one that's that's looked at that often. Yeah, right. And this question's probably like you, it's probably a longer answer, but do you mind kindly um touching up on um like all the fad diets that are kind of going around? So like veganism, keto, uh intermittent fasting. Is is it confusing giving kind of medical advice when there's so much research out there with nutrition? Yeah. I mean, the thing is that there isn't actually research behind a lot of these diets or the research that's done is so short term. Like we don't have any longevity studies on any weight loss or weight change diets because people can't stay on them long enough to get actual like, you know, scientific and 
you know, probability studies done or like get good statistics on these diets because you just can't stay on them long enough, which speaks to the problem itself. I think definitely it is challenging because weight loss diets do tend to work short term. And so that's the part where people start to kind of like, you know, be hard on themselves and, you know, notice that like, well, it worked once for me to try this diet. So why won't it work again? And really, it's just a matter of like, our body will survive and it will do what it has to do. But it doesn't mean it's thriving in a time when it's being, you know, starved or restricted from major nutrients that provide it the fuel it needs. So there's so many different diets out there that, you know, short term are effective, but just long term, they aren't sustainable and our body will kind of override any will to engage in those diets. So I like, you know, the science that we have and the evidence we have is like the best defense against those diets and people's lived experiences. Like, you know, once you're able to kind of like explain to them why they do fail a certain diet or why certain things happen with a diet and then why your body kind of works against that. And they have that lived experience that they've yo-yoed through those diets many times. It can really help them to start to consider just trying things a different way. You know, like I always say to my clients, like if I like bought a new shampoo and I used it and my hair turned bright yellow, for example, like I wouldn't be like, oh, I can't believe my hair is such bad hair that it would, you know, take this lovely shampoo and turn it yellow. It's like, I'd be like, man, there's something wrong with this shampoo. I wouldn't, you know, just continue to buy this product because other people said it worked if it doesn't work for me. Whereas with the diet, like a diet fails and people are like, well, there must be something wrong with me. I'll try something different. I'll try another diet and another diet. And every time they fail, it's not the product, it's it's your body. And right. the more we can start to see that and see that like, hey, this is an industry that is intended to fail, um, the more we can, yeah, the more we can like actually support people to have like a healing relationship with their bodies and food. Yeah. And just a last question, um, what are the three skills or qualities you think you need to have in order to be a successful registered dietitian? Well, you know what? I think honestly, there's so so much variation and variability in the different types of people that work in the field of dietetics. That's what makes it such a like rich, like rich community. Because you know, I went through school, and as soon as I started to like learn a bit about eating disorders, I was like, well, that's 100% where I want to work. And it shocked me that you know my closest friends also didn't want to work in eating disorders. That we were all drawn into such different areas of nutrition and areas of the field of dietetics. So. I think that, you know, there's so much variation and ability for different personalities to thrive. I know for myself, my, you know, relationship building is one of the biggest skills that I have and that ability to build that trusting rapport because no matter what area of of work you're doing, when you're helping people to like look at really sensitive topics and things that are vulnerable, like our connection to food, fears about health, fears about illness or chronic disease, you know, that your ability to help someone to trust you is going to provide so much um, value to that relationship. And they're going to be able to maybe do some or look at some things that are really scary for them, no matter what area of, of the field you work in. I think a, a love and a passion for science and nutrition itself, of course, like, and not necessarily using food as medicine in the sense of like, trying to cure people of, of some affliction, but actually like looking at how we can help people to trust and love and support their bodies, knowing that like, the human body is this mo- like the most miraculous machine and can do so much when actually supported and actually can do so much when even when it's not supported properly. But 
um, you know, a love for science and the passion for nutrition can really help to, you know, see, like help promote and be an advocate for these topics that we're really trying to do as dietitians. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just think humor, but that's my own personal take. Like I love to laugh with my clients and have fun and, you know, be lighthearted because like, even though they're really difficult topics and I would never want to invalidate someone's experience, I also want, you know, them to see that like, you know, we can have a happy, pleasurable, enjoyable, loving relationship with food in our bodies. It doesn't have to be so serious. Like the sole function of our physical body isn't just to gain and lose weight. There's so much more that we are and that we do. And so I like to use like, you know, humor and definitely that's what Hannah and I try to do with our podcast, the Let Us Eat Cake podcast, because we know that like sometimes humor is the best way to connect with people. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I love the perspective that you guys bring on that podcast. So thank you so much, Ali, for chatting with yeah. me. I highly recommend anyone to listen to their podcast. If you're going through an eating disorder or you know someone that is, or you're just curious and want to know more about some of the questions that they've answered, um, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and honestly, for it's for everyone. Like, even if you have no, it's not related to disordered eating, if you've ever considered or been on a diet or known someone who's been on a diet, we tackle all the, like, hot topics in diet culture and looking at all the myths and then providing like, a really good sense of, like, the science behind things and have a lot of fun. So, yes, check us out. Our podcast is Let Us Eat Cake, um, and we are on Instagram at Eat Cake Pod. So people can check us out. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you, Allie. You're so welcome. And thanks for having me. And that was Ellie Eberhardt. I love chatting with her today. She really adds a joyful and humorous tone to a serious topic. And if you don't mind, please review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it easier. So thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.